Hey everyone, Andrew here. In a prior episode, I spoke with Dr. Daniel Lenahan about amyloidosis, which was an incredibly illuminating conversation. His clinical focus here at WashU is cardio-oncology, an area that focuses on the management of cancer patients who develop cardiac issues during cancer treatments. We met again to talk about the field of cardio-oncology, and I have to confess, we barely even scratched the surface. This is a huge field with a lot of therapies to keep track of, and honestly, a lot of unknowns. Dr. Lenahan is a great teacher, and I think you'll learn a lot from our discussion. I hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. It really helps other people find it. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Thank you for meeting with me again, uh, Dr. Lenahan. Can I have you just uh, say your name and your title again for our audience? Yes, uh, this is Daniel Lenahan. I'm the Professor of Medicine and Director of the Cardio-Oncology Center of Excellence at Washington University in St. Louis. Great, thank you. I know cardio-oncology has been uh, kind of brewing in the background for a few years, and now it's kind of getting a bit more into the limelight. It's getting a lot more attention even from uh, internists, oncologists, and cardiologists around. So I appreciate you taking the time and visiting uh, with me about that. Absolutely. Uh, I would point out that in, in reference to your opening statement, we just there is a publication this week in Jack about preparing the the medical world for the needs that, that to address cardio-oncology. So it's a very timely topic. And then the other piece is that Jack has commissioned a, a new journal, one of the Jack sister journals oh, yeah? for cardio-oncology. And that is accepting applic- uh, publications now. And the first, the first actual publication will be in September. Gotcha. Okay. So, very cool. You affiliated with it in any way? Or? Yes, I'm the deputy editor. Okay, very cool. Congratulations. So, I mean, cardio-oncology, this is a huge broad field because oncology itself is just a broad field full of you know patients undergoing surgery, chemotherapy, radiation. So there's a lot of things that we could talk about. I think we'll focus in on like some of the more common cancers and the treatments used there and the associated cardiotoxicities. Uh, I do have a patient, I'm actually currently on the bone marrow transplant service right now, and we have a patient, you know, he's in mid-50s, and he uh, he has acute myeloid leukemia, and he had underwent uh, induction therapy with uh, doxorubicin as, as part of his uh, induction chemo some time ago, and had a normal ejection fraction prior, and then, you know, six months afterwards was found to have a reduced ejection fraction 30, like 30 to 35% on his echo. I mean, he himself doesn't like notice any differences, like symptomatically wise. He does get some lower extremity edema, but hasn't really noticed any dyspnea on exertion. Part of his questions to me were like, you know, could this have been prevented? What are the things we can do to help like treat it? And then, you know, is this putting me at increased risk for mortality? So maybe we'll start with talking just in broad scopes about like anthracyclines and maybe those who are at greatest risk, and then we'll talk about some of the more, the, the common cancers, solid tumors. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, your case example is, is 
it's a perfect example and and then also it gives you an opportunity to to understand in more depth not only about anthracyclines but just about cardiotoxicity as it's referred to uh, in the context of a of a patient with cancer so you know your patient who's in his 50s and has a very serious diagnosis with AML got treated and at least in part I'm sure he got anthracyclines but he probably got other therapies as well it's true yeah and then whether he ultimately went to a stem cell transplant or has had a series of infections or other issues that have arisen uh, that's always kind of the, the most important follow-up points of view, mm -hmm. you know, in these particular patients. So for the most part, I would say, like you're in your example, you know, if you have a patient who is n no other cardiac issues have been identified in the past, and then they get treated with an anthracycline, uh, there's the possibility of an acute toxicity which can occur it doesn't happen frequently but mm. but it can occur and i would say that there's probably at least some experimental evidence that uh, any dose of anthracycline has the potential to cause myocardial death or damage uh, and then uh but you know there's been a lot of people in the world that have been treated with anthracyclines and they had no evidence of toxicity clinically yeah uh, so then you say well that doesn't necessarily make sense if they have any even with just one dose of anthracycline they may have some myocardial damage uh -huh. but you know there's all these patients that got many many doses of anthracyclines and they had no evidence of heart failure uh -huh. and I would say in that setting you probably they had enough cardiac reserve to where they were able to compensate so even though they probably had some microscopic damage, uh, you know, overall their, their heart was able to compensate. Maybe their cardiovascular condition was such that they could withstand that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, an, another way to think about it is, you know, when I was in medical school, I don't know if they're still teaching this, but it seemed as the one thing I learned is that, you know, alcohol will cause you know, some loss of brain cells, but you know, if we, if we all have a little too much alcohol one day, maybe we've, uh, harmed some brain cells, but luckily we have hopefully many more that can compensate yeah. and that you don't really notice, uh, any kind of brain issue, even though you probably had some, some damage. Sure. And I think that you could equate that sort of general principle to anthracyclines. Gotcha. And so then the other part is, is that after you've been treated and let's say there's no clinical evidence of cardiomyopathy or heart failure, uh -huh. you come down with another illness or you get other treatment. And mm -hmm. so, for example, if somebody has otherwise been stable for a number of months and then they get a very severe infection and you measure their LV function and all of a sudden it's really reduced. And, you know, what that's probably just telling you is that the sepsis or the infection was overwhelming their compensatory mechanisms. Gotcha. So then all of a sudden the cardiomyopathy appears. Gotcha. I see. <clears throat> and then I think the other part, you know, relevant to the questions your patient asked, you know, 
could this have been prevented? And now that I've got it, is it permanent? And does it have an impact on my cancer treatment yeah. ultimately? And the answer to all of those is yes, yes, and yes. Mm. So, however, the, you know, the implications have always been that in regards to anthracyclines, that the, the damage is permanent. But that yeah. is, that is uh, urban legends. That's not true. If you ignore the damage and you do nothing, then it's not going to improve. Okay. And just like if somebody had a myocardial infarction and you didn't treat them with the standard medications, their LV function will be bad mm -hmm. and it's not going to improve anytime down the road. Sure. And so the implication being if people many years ago got anthracyclines and then 10 years later you find that they have LV dysfunction uh -huh. and you say, oh, that's permanent. No, it's not permanent. Yeah. Uh, if treated appropriately with contemporary heart failure therapy, then uh, it will hopefully improve. But also, the earlier you catch it, the more likely it is to be responsive. So if you, if you detect a problem at the beginning stages of injury, mm -hmm. then the chance that you'll recover to normal function is very high. But if you don't detect it or it doesn't show up until 10 years later, then perhaps that situation is not as responsive. Gotcha. So I think timing is, is everything, just like it is in any, mm -hmm. any aspect of cardiology. Yeah. Let me go back to one thing you said a little bit earlier when talking about, you know, some patients, you know, a lot of patients are getting anthracyclines, but not all of them, um, you know, develop heart failure or cardiomyopathy. We're talking about this cardiac reserve. I think that in part probably reflects like patient comorbidities. So we have like a very healthy patient going into this relatively young who then undergoes, you know, chemotherapies, probably has a lot of cardiac reserve as opposed to maybe an older person with diabetes, possibly like some end-stage renal disease or something, yeah. you know, add on one or two other yeah, insults. Yeah. That person's just at greater risk because their cardiac reserve isn't there per se. Exactly. Not fair. Okay. And again, you know, even something simple like activity versus inactivity. So a person who's generally physically active and tries to keep their physical strength, mm -hmm. you know, up to snuff is likely to do much better than somebody who's very sedentary and has no built-in cardiac reserve. Gotcha. Now, in terms of one of the last things we were talking about was catching it early. And so I know there's been some discussion, or at least some papers published about global longitudinal strain versus like ejection fraction. So frequently I've noticed as I've rotated on oncology, they usually get like a MUGA scan because to get like get a more accurate ejection fraction is what they tell me. Because right? the cardiologist, when you get an echo, they always give you like a range. They always say like 40 to 45. And I just want a number that like tells me the sensitivity. And then I remember hearing from, I think, Dr. Gorson here, John Gorson, about uh, strain and how that can be a more sensitive marker. So is that something that's used in practice here to like monitor for cardiotoxicities? Or maybe you can tell me more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, if, you, if you get into the minds of an oncologist, so I'm not an oncologist, so I can't say that I can get into their mind. But, sure. Uh, you know, there are doctors so that they have tendencies that doctors have, which are, you know, 
give me something and uh, uh, a threshold or a bar I have to get over and sure. I'll get over it. Yeah. And so the appealing thing about a mugga is that it only gives you one number and there's no debate. Sure. Uh -huh. As opposed to an echo, which gives you thousands of numbers. If you look at everything, you look at mitral valve function, aortic valve function, yeah. pericardial disease, estimates of PA pressure, the whole bit. I mean, there's there's a uh, hundred or more data points in an average echo, mm -hmm. and the EF is just one of them. So mm -hmm. uh, if you're an oncologist, you don't want to know about those other hundred data points. Uh, you'd rather just get an EF, and if it's above 50, then the patient can proceed. And so that's where, honestly, uh, Mugus sort of got its traction. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so that's been in place for 15 or 20 years. And so anything that's been done for that long, it's hard to change. Sure. It's hard to change that pattern. Uh, and then, you know, 30 years ago, there were studies that showed that perhaps a MUGA had a more accurate EF assessment than an ECHO. But that's those those data are based in the late 1980s or early 1990s. It was probably very different ECHO. Different ECHO quality. capacity for yeah. sure. But even then, I would even spot you that a MUGA might give you a more specific number than an echo, but a mugga will give you nothing in terms of valve function, yeah. diastolic function, mm -hmm. pericardial disease, basic structure, all the other hundred data points that you get from an echo, uh -huh. and that includes strain. Yeah. So strain is a new, newer technique, and it is felt to be a more exact or early description of myocardial deformation or function at a at a much more of a pinpoint level uh -huh. so if you think about lv function in general you say you look at the whole left ventricle and you measure the size of the ventricle in diastole and then you measure it in systole and then you compute ejection fraction on a global level mm -hmm. uh, strain is is much more of a pinpoint measurement. So it's looking at different regions in the in the heart and looking at muscle cells compared to muscle cells mm -hmm. and, and you know how much they deform uh -huh. during contraction. And so you can get regional strain measurements and then you get a global longitudinal strain, which is an average of all of those regional measurements. Yeah. Now the idea is, is that in a person who has normal strain at you know at baseline and you give a drug that you may develop abnormalities in that strain before you have any global change in ejection fraction so mm -hmm. it may precede a detectable event mm -hmm. and again that probably gets back to if you were doing very careful strain measurements in patients getting anthracyclines mm -hmm. that you may detect small changes that haven't they haven't been substantial enough to change a global number mm -hmm. like EF 
Uh, and so the, the implication is, is that this tool may precede any changes in LVEF. Mm -hmm. And there are some data out there to suggest that this is a true statement. Mm -hmm. But it's still technically challenging, and there are different vendors, and so there's some variation in the technique. So I think we're still trying to work through some of those details. But mm -hmm. at this point, I would say whenever possible, we, we like to get strain measurements, and uh -huh. we like to get them before they start therapy. Uh -huh. And then if we see a notable change, it's not, it doesn't tell you that you have to stop therapy, the cancer therapy or not, uh -huh. but it may tell you that this is a marker of early damage and that maybe you should do something cardiology-based to, to improve that. Sure. Okay. So strain is, is one tool. I would also add, you know, cardiac biomarkers are an important tool as well. Oh, yeah, and sure. So, so I am... Uh, a proponent of those tests because they're much cheaper and they can be done repetitively and there's not an interpretation variability that exists. You, you get the test, it gives you a number. And and so I think that... You're talking like troponins, troponins and like BNP. Or, or BNP or NT-pro-BNP. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think that the most sophisticated or hopefully the best overall approach to monitoring for cardiotoxicity, whether it be with anthracyclines or some other uh, drug that may affect myocardial function, is a combination of biomarkers, imaging, and clinical exam. Mm -hmm. So, and depending on which population you're talking about, you may do, may rely more on one versus the other, uh, depending on the situation. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then while we're on it, we've hinted at this, but so say we're following somebody, their global longitudinal strain starts to decrease a bit. What are the kind of medications or therapies you might reach for to help protect or mitigate against that damage? Are we talking the same players as like our usual guideline-directed medical therapy, like ACEs, ARBs, beta blockers, spironolactone? And are there is there one of those that may be more preferred than another? Uh, excellent question. I think that the guideline directed medical therapy for systolic heart failure mm -hmm. has, you know, a whole range of medicines, many of which you just mentioned. Those are certainly go-to medications when you're trying to either prevent LV dysfunction or improve already existing LV dysfunction. However, uh, in many cases, you can't use all of them mm -hmm. like you do, like you would in somebody who has systolic heart failure from whatever cause. Sure, you know you end up getting on RAS inhibitors and carvedilol and spironolactone and diuretics, and mm -hmm. you know they're on the whole kitchen sink. Mm -hmm. In these patients, you know they're undergoing treatment for cancer, so you know there are other things that are that are yeah predominant in, in their story, and you probably would not be able to use all of those medicines. So mm -hmm. you have to make decisions about which one and which situation. Sure. So I think, um, you know, that's where you really tailor it to the patient. So if they have not severe LV dysfunction, but notable LV dysfunction, I would certainly go with, 
you know, RAS inhibitor and carvedilol, especially if they're tachycardic, uh -huh. you know, and if you're having issues with volume, then you're going to use, you know, diuretic and plus minus spironolactone. So, uh -huh. so I think you have to kind of fit into what's happening in the patient's whole world. Yeah. But I would also say that it's not all about LV dysfunction because in many drugs, especially the more contemporary therapies that maybe we'll get to, uh, the, the cardiotoxicity that we see is not just LV dysfunction. That's, that's the old school mm -hmm. mentality. Sure. The current therapy has such a variety of toxicities that you really need to uh, explore all of them. So two other big categories that you need to put into the picture are mm -hmm. vascular complications and coupled with that would be anticoagulation issues. Mm -hmm. So those are in the in what I would consider the the real world of cardio-oncology at this point. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about cardiotoxicity, we need to talk about LV dysfunction for sure. Vascular problems, anticoagulation, and then of course electrical issues mm -hmm. are all part of that piece. But when you're thinking about cardio cardiotoxicity during cancer therapy, it has to encompass all of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it can't just be anthracyclines and measurement of LVEF. Yeah. That's that's. Uh, a historically very important area, mm -hmm. but current uh, contemporary therapy is so complex that you have to really think beyond that. Okay. So with that being said, let's talk about the most <coughs> the most common uh, type of cancer being lung cancer. And let's talk about some of the uh, considerations or concerns of the cardiotoxicities that are used in the uh, in the regimens used for lung cancer. Yeah, so this this area has really exploded in the last decade, actually probably less than a decade, but uh, so for many years, the, the treatment of lung cancer was surgical. Mm -hmm. If you had any chance of meaningful change in their progression of their disease, it was, you had to cut it out. Mm -hmm. and. If you weren't able to do that, then the, the outcomes were, were quite poor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, estimated five-year survival was well under 50% mm -hmm. for lung cancer that was not resected. Mm -hmm. uh, there's really been a dramatic change in the options for the treatment of lung cancer. So the whole concept of targeted therapy, mm -hmm. you know, sort of started in breast cancer where we were targeting the HER2 receptor mm -hmm. and developed Herceptin or Trastuzumab. And then there are several drugs now that are focused on how HER2 receptor is activated. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole field of, of therapies that were targeted in mm -hmm. the breast cancer world. That same process is happening in lung cancer. So there, uh, there was an ALK receptor, ALK, 
receptor antagonists, right, the ERB receptor antagonists, and then there are several others. I, I don't know them all. Mm -hmm. And then uh, certainly checkpoint inhibitors, where yeah. they, they block PD-1 uh, or CTL-4. These are, you know, groundbreaking therapies, and they've had a significant improvement in, in patients with lung cancer, mm -hmm. uh, such that people that previously you would have thought they have easily less than one year survival just based on the extent of their disease, they're given checkpoint inhibitors, and two years later, there is no evidence of disease. Yeah. It's an astonishing thing. And no, so, so your whole concept of, you know, mortality and seriousness of lung cancer, you have to rethink that one. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a, that's a very, it's a, it's an extremely exciting area of cancer therapy at this point. Yeah. And so in the lung cancer world, there's a number of targeted therapies that exist and uh, they, they really have shown dramatic improvements in the overall outcome. No, for sure. Yeah, no, there's been, no, like you said, just dramatic changes in that landscape with great benefit to patients. I mean, while we're there, I mean, we've already brought up, you know, checkpoint inhibitors, you know, pretty new in these like ipilimumab and nivolumab. What are the sorts of cardiotoxicities that you can see from there and how do they manifest or like at what time point do they manifest? Yeah, so if you ask me at this moment, I will tell you what I know, which is some, but not uh -huh. not a huge amount. And in six months from now, I imagine, I hope that I know a lot more, and I hope that the, the field in general knows a lot more. Sure. But we're really, you know, this is, this is you know, on-the-job training or flying by the seat of the pants or whatever sort of uh -huh. uh, axiom you have for... You know how you learn every day new things. That's that's basically what's happening in mm -hmm. in the ideas surrounding checkpoint inhibitor associated cardiotoxicity. Mm -hmm. So again, you have to think way outside the box from just changes in LVEF because that's not even really relevant in this population. Sure. So what checkpoint inhibitors do, and again, I'm not an oncologist, so this is a cardiologist viewpoint of what those drugs do. Sure, yeah. So simplified at best. Uh -huh. uh, so you, in your body, you have your immune system has checkpoints. So they're mm -hmm. like breaks. Mm -hmm. And in essence, if you give a checkpoint inhibitor, you're taking the brake off. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're riding a bike down a hill and you don't have a brake. Yeah. You just go faster. Mm -hmm. And so if you imagine your immune system to be that bike, you know, and you're going down a hill and you take the brakes off, you might gain a lot of speed. Mm -hmm. And that would be good if you want to get down the hill fast. Mm -hmm. uh, but also if the hill's really steep, you might get going a little too fast for your, mm -hmm. for your comfort. Yeah. And so... The little too fast for your comfort is what happens in the case of uh, cardiac manifestations from checkpoint inhibitors. 
So any system in your body can develop an inflammatory situation. Uh -huh. So commonly that's manifested in your skin or in your thyroid. Mm -hmm. uh, I think well over 30% of people that do checkpoint inhibitors or that are treated with them uh, have developed like a, a thyroid, thyroid problem. So or a thyroiditis or of something. Colitis and is very colitis, common on the exactly. as well. And so myocarditis is part of the picture. Mm -hmm. But I would also say, and this is probably even more common and more concerning, is vasculitis. Mm. So you have... There have been, you know, a few reports in the world about myocarditis, which is very serious mm -hmm. if it occurs. Right now, the estimate is that at least 50% of those people die. So that's not a good condition. And if we could figure out who is at risk or how you attenuate it when it occurs, that would be hugely important. Right now, we're we sort of making a bunch of guesses and hoping that it works with some successes, but, but less than satisfactory for sure. Mm -hmm. So myocarditis would be one of the most serious potential problems, but I would think, and this is just now sort of coming out that mm -hmm. it's actually the vascular problems that are, mm -hmm. that, that could be uh, more, much more common. And then similarly may be difficult to deal with. So you have a vasculitis or a myocarditis or thyroiditis or colitis, any kind of itis, mm -hmm. that's your that's your immune system going too fast. Yeah. And uh, so that's that's our that's our main challenge. The problem is is that even before checkpoint inhibitors, you know, I was certainly in the field of advanced heart failure for many years, like the last 15 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. And every time I encountered a person with possible or probable or even definite myocarditis, uh -huh. it was very difficult, A, to make the diagnosis, B, to manage it, uh -huh. and C, to prevent it from recurring again or any of those things. Mm -hmm. So most of the time you just sort of do what seemed to work last time and hope for the best. Gotcha. So you have, even in your non-cancer population, we've always struggled with the myocarditis. How do you deal with it? How do you treat yeah. it? And then, then you throw in this whole new world. So we're really at a, mm -hmm. a disadvantage in terms of our knowledge base. I think if we uh, were really confident we knew how to manage a condition, even if you encounter it in another unusual situation, you know, you go back to the basics and you know, yeah. you know how to manage the basics. Uh, we don't have any basics for myocarditis. So that's where it really becomes a challenge. Mm -hmm. So there's the part about diagnosing the condition. And then there's the, the part about what about their subsequent treatment? Mm -hmm. So if you had a, lung cancer or some other cancer that really responded well mm -hmm. to a checkpoint inhibitor. And let's say you even responded well yeah. in the first few cycles of it. And then you develop myocarditis and say you even recover from that, luckily. Mm -hmm. You know, do you go back to that therapy even though 
you had a potentially life-threatening condition, yeah, uh, or you say no, just can't we can't use that therapy. Well, you just made a dramatic decision that affects the cancer outcome. Yeah. So, what we really don't know at this point is is who can we rechallenge and how do we go about rechallenging them if we're going to do it. Gotcha. So I think. Uh, we reach out to our colleagues frequently to try to get a sense, you know, how to deal with that. Gotcha. Sounds like a lot of work to be done there for oh, yeah. prognosticating and then even probably some trials of like... Yeah, I think there's certainly therapy. the yeah. detection of it, the treatment of it, the prevention of it, the uh, potential rechallenging. Those would all be huge areas that we need more information for sure. Yeah. But I think it's exciting when you have a treatment that's so effective because mm -hmm. then you know, okay, I've got to do my best here. I've got to figure out how to how to allow these patients to uh, you know to get the the therapy that we know is mm -hmm. very likely to be highly successful from their cancer point of view. Gotcha. Now, how about like stepping back and looking at patients with lung cancer? You know, these checkpoint inhibitors are. One of more, a lot of patients are getting them now. The thing about patients who, you know, had lung cancer, you know, even like five years ago or so, you know, they had, you know, a tumor resected and they got some adjuvant chemo, maybe with like cisplatin, maybe they had like one of the ALK or ERG, ERB mutations and got a directed therapy. What are the concerns you're looking for then uh, in those patients? What might they present with as far as cardiotoxicity? Yeah, so conventional treatment for lung cancer aside from the people that you resected it. Uh -huh. So every everybody other than those that you cut it out was some combination of chemotherapy and radiation. Mm -hmm. And that radiation was to your lung or your chest or your mediastinum or somewhere in the middle of your chest. Yeah. And so that radiation is going to have a very important impact. And it will certainly promote aggressive atherosclerosis and depending on the location of the radiation it could easily affect the valvular structures mm -hmm. so yeah there's a that's a whole another world but that's the that was the or that is a still the conventional treatment for lung cancer even yeah. if you get a checkpoint inhibitor you're probably going to get radiation too mm -hmm. for non-resectable lung cancer gotcha so radiation is still there they have better ways of directing the radiation beams mm -hmm. and different techniques to minimize other organ toxicity, but it's still still a real yeah. thing, very much so. And they can develop, as you mentioned, affect the valve, so like aortic stenosis, mitral stenosis. They can also develop some coronary disease, right? Doesn't radiation increase your risk for atherosclerotic disease? Very much, very yeah. much so. So, you know, most people, if they get like let's say they had a head and neck cancer and they got the standard treatment for that, which would be, uh, depending if it's a relatively early stage, they would they would just get radiation. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's a little bit more progressive, they'll they'll get radiation in combination with some sort of chemotherapy. This is for head and neck cancer, so anywhere from above your clavicles, they this is mm -hmm. the kind of treatment that they would get. Well. We've seen so many examples where you look at the carotids three to five years later, 
and they're extensively calcified and mm-hmm. you know, complex stenoses. So no question, radiation affects mm-hmm. vascular beds very, uh, very diffusely. So. Is there any way to prevent that, like at the time of them receiving their radiation? Well, we would think so. I mean, so if you if you're thinking as a cardiologist, you know, what, if you had somebody that was at high risk for the development of atherosclerosis, what would you do? Yeah, you probably put them on a statin, or you might even try like a PCSK9 or something these days, manage their cholesterol. Certainly, a lifestyle statin. modifications. I Certainly, mean, a statin, yeah. a baby aspirin. Uh, in a very high-risk patient, you may even put them on Plavix. Mm-hmm. You know, if they had, uh, you know, evidence of diffuse vascular disease. So, so we haven't applied that kind of information to people that are getting radiation mm. as a group, as a whole. Mm-hmm. So, all those lung cancer, all those patients with lung cancer who are being treated with radiation, probably never got a lipid profile. Yeah, they may or may not be on an aspirin. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there, we have a huge have no opportunity. data. No data. No data. Yeah. Okay. Huge opportunity to modify that. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Going back to patients who develop uh, LV dysfunction, you know, this can be during their chemotherapy. Does it improve once the chemotherapy is removed? I like to equate this to, say you were a... Uh, a runner, a track star, mm-hmm. and you were training or whatever, and you injured you. Somebody hit you on your thigh, so your thigh gets injured, mm-hmm. and you try to work through that and just keep training and want to do your race mm-hmm. in two weeks or whatever. Uh, if you keep training on an injured muscle, that that injury is gonna it's gonna get worse. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not going to get better. And then that injury is never going to fully heal. Mm-hmm. So if you really have an injury and you're trying to, you know, do competitive sports, you know, you need to rest, you need to heal, you need to get that back mm-hmm. to normal, to baseline before you start training again. So if you take that analogy and apply it to, you know, cancer therapy, mm-hmm. Uh, once a person has injury, if you keep injuring it further, then it's only going to become either permanent or more severe either mm-hmm. way. But if you identify it early and you, you know, give them a chance to heal, then uh, chances are it will, it will get better. Gotcha. So I think that uh, that's a simple analogy that, that mm-hmm. I like to apply, I think. If there is evidence of toxicity, you want to you want to find it soon, mm-hmm. and you want to manage it right away. Gotcha. Okay. And I think that in most cases, if you do that, I would say seventy five percent or more, they're likely to improve. Okay. So it's good news on that side. Mm-hmm. But then going forward, you know, you would need to really emphasize prevention or cardioprotection mm-hmm. in those patients. Gotcha. If, they, if they get some other treatment. Another treatment. Gotcha. Are there, thinking about our our breast cancer patients, are there any other like unique aspects to them that we should be concerned about? You know, thinking about their, you know, their HER2 receptors that they, like trastuzumab they may be on, the HER2 blocker, 
or like being on tamoxifen, their their uh, anti-hormonal therapies as well. Yeah. So this is this is you know breast cancer in and of itself is you know you can go on and on in many different directions uh -huh. of all the areas that that you know are impacted. But just to hit the highlights, I mean, maybe not so much in the United States. We don't use anthracyclines for certain breast cancers like they do in other countries. Uh -huh. But if you are in South America or any parts of Europe, that if you have HER2 negative disease, so you don't have an indication for trastuzumab or Herceptin, uh -huh. they all get anthracyclines, or the far, significant majority. I see. Okay. And, you know, in the U.S., we may say, oh, the breast cancer doctors in the U.S. may say, oh, we don't ever use anthracycline. Yeah. Well, that's true. They Maybe they don't as much as they used to, but in the rest of the world, they do. Gotcha. Uh, so anthracyclines have not gone away. Uh, they will be around for mm -hmm. sure. Maybe a smaller percentage, but it'll still be significant. Uh, HER2 therapy... The classic example is trastuzumab, but there mm -hmm. are a number of newer drugs. Yeah, uh, right. Pertuzumab is is a HER2 uh, directed agent. It works in, by a different mechanism than trastuzumab, and but they're closely related. The main point is to shut off HER2 signaling. Mm -hmm. So, uh, pertuzumab is frequently used in combination. And then there's a, a, a targeted therapy with chemotherapy attached to it. So it's Herceptin with TDM or with DM1. Oh, yeah. So that's called TDM1. So it's trastuzumab plus DM1. Mm -hmm. And they're put together in a molecule. And then that molecule is used for the treatment of, of breast cancer and uh, so there's a lot of different ways in which they're trying to connect treatments uh, surrounding the HER2 mechanism. Mm -hmm. But this is all very interesting if you have HER2, breast HER2 positive breast cancer, yeah. which only makes up about, at most, 25% of breast cancers. Mm -hmm. So the other 75% mm -hmm. may get anthracycline, they may get tamoxifen, they may get a whole host of other therapies. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, this is really opens up many lines of, of concern. So radiation, sure. you know, especially left-sided radiation makes you more likely to have coronary disease. Uh -huh. Tamoxifen raises, not dramatically, but does raise your risk of thrombosis, mm -hmm. mostly venous, but also arterial. Um, and then, of um, some of the newer drugs, there's a whole class of drugs called CDK4-6 inhibitors, mm -hmm. which is a portion of the cell cycle, and somehow these inhibit the cell cycle pro proliferation. Those drugs uh, are indicated for certain patients, so it's not all patients, but they do seem to be very effective from a cancer point of view, but they clearly have at least some of them have a known signal of prolonged QT. Mm -hmm. So this is where you have to consider the electrical components of toxicity 
in this whole mix too. Gotcha. So I think uh, it can't just be about LV dysfunction. It has to be about vascular issues, electrical issues. You got to put the whole picture together, and then radiation, you know, as we've already talked, has has its own issues. Yeah. So I think that the more we know, the the more we know that we don't know. So mm-hmm. I think that as the new drugs come out, we have to keep our eyes open for some cardiovascular event. And it could be in any area that affects the cardiovascular system. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you and a few others have your work cut out for you. Yeah, well, it's good. Forward. Job security, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I think it's a... I really enjoy this area of cardiology for many reasons, mm-hmm. uh, not the least of which, I think probably the most important reason is, is that if you just imagine yourself a patient with cancer and you go see your doctor and they say, okay, we're going we're gonna to give you chemo for about three weeks or three months or whatever interval, uh-huh. then we're going to do surgery, then after that we're going to do radiation, and then after that we're going to do some more chemo. And then, you know, we can consider some other surgery after that. Uh-huh. That This whole thing, whatever we're talking about, is two years of your life. Uh-huh. Um, you, The last thing you would want to hear in the context of that whole treatment paradigm mm-hmm. is that you have some new cardiac issue that has developed. Yeah. Or it has worsened the pre-existing cardiac issue. Sure, yeah. You would not want to add that to your mix. Yeah. So I think that that's probably the most motivating factor for me is that these patients are already asked to do so much mm-hmm. in so many ways that if I can take cardiac issues off the table, that's a gr- that's a that's a great victory. Yeah. No, that's a it's a powerful motivation. So yeah. and I think you know, scientifically it's interesting, that's good. I mean, that's always nice. Because, you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as scientists, but uh, really the most motivating feature is that, is just how can we minimize these issues and patients that are already, mm-hmm. you know, suffering a lot, having to deal with a lot. Yeah. Awesome. Well. Super. Thank you so much for your time and your perspective. Appreciate it. Okay. No problem. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This series is 